0: Welcome to the Well podcast. We hope that this message will help you grow in your faith and give you practical ways to strengthen your relationships. To find out more, visit thewell.ca. Hey, friends. Well, um, I have a treat for you today. It's going to delight your senses, okay? Some of you, this is the only thing you're going to remember about the message. This is a picture of me from 1994. All right, with my parents and my grandparents uh, the day before I left home to go to university. Now, there's a number of things about this picture we just have to get uh, set right away. Yes, those are cut off jean shorts. And you're like, hey, he has black hair. Yes, but as you can see, just to my left, where I was heading with my salt and pepper look, which I'm very happy to have inherited. And then you're wondering, why isn't Vijay's grandmother smiling? Which, if you're Indian, you know she is. This is what Indian grandparents, the, you can't tell, but she is overjoyed, beaming. (laughs) Now this is, as I said, a picture the day before I left home three hours down the 401 to go to school um, for the first time. So I was away from home in my undergrad and you can't tell from the picture, but in my mind, I'm thinking things like, will I have fun? I mean, this is top of my mind. Will I have fun is definitely what I'm thinking about. Will I meet a cute girl? Okay. There's 15,000 students at the university. Like I didn't know anyone. Surely I could convince someone to go out on a date with me. I'm thinking about that. Uh, a part of my brain was thinking, will I even graduate? <laughs> Am I going to be able to do this? And then hopefully, will I get a good job out of the whole deal of this thing? Now, what I should have been thinking was, will my faith survive? I mean, will my faith survive? Because if I was thinking that, that would have prepared me at least even a bit for the onslaught of questions, um, accusations, and even some of the anger and emotions that would be directed towards this book, (laughs) Uh, in one sense, towards me, this book, the Bible, the book that had been a really important part of my life as a Jesus follower, as someone who sort of grew up in the church and grew up as a pastor's kid. But within the first couple of weeks at school, so many questions, comments, accusations, and strong emotions towards this book. Um, like in the, my first week in residence, um, one of the guys on my floor who eventually became a really good friend. He was in my program, became a roommate in second year. He said to me, oh, when he found out I was a Christian, oh, did you know that they've discovered this species called the coelacinth, which is actually like a, a half species between two others, which proves that evolution is true and that the Bible's account of the world is false. Did you know that? Oh, that was week one. And then my first uh, religion and literature class, which was just a course I took on the side, not part of my core program. Our professor was, as he explained in the first day, used to be, or was an ordained minister, used to be a minister, um, but he didn't do that anymore. And he was glad for education. He had a PhD in New Testament, but he said, I don't, but I don't really take the Bible literally. And I don't think we should. Oh, well, then I go on to my uh, history of philosophy course, which is another one I did on the side. And actually this was a seminar course and the professor had, e- had mailed out Um, that's like the actual paper in the mail to us readings before the class from Genesis 1 and 2 and 3. And I was like, wow, interesting. I didn't know this. This wasn't about the Bible. It's just history of philosophy. Well, we get to class, seminar class, a rectangle, a bunch of us sit down. We never met each other for the first time. And the professor says, so any comments on the reading? Well, several hands shot up. And this one girl just before she was even called on just said, I cannot believe you would make us read this book that has been a tool of oppression and slavery and racism and misogyny. Welcome to school. And then hanging out in the pub with some of my friends who were now part of my program. They found out I was a Christian and say, Oh, but like the Bible has been changed and edited so many different ways. Like, it's not really reliable. You can't really trust what you're reading. Can you? To which I would say, uh, I no, Yes. I, I don't know. I felt backed into a corner. They, they were, you know, like um, true or false statements or agree or disagree or accusations in a sense that I somehow felt like I had to defend. And if I didn't have a good answer and if my, if my response wasn't no, but this or that, then somehow my faith would fall apart. Um, I don't know about you, but your story is different than mine, but possibly you've had those questions. Um, you've asked and wrestled with those same things as you're maybe exploring faith or new to faith, or even as you read scripture, you're someone who's saying, you know, I'm a devoted follower of Jesus, or perhaps, and for sure, probably people in your life who don't want anything to do with God or church or whatever, or maybe had it in their past. They have these questions, families, friends at school, colleagues, um, neighbors, I think one of the reasons that I felt sort of so angsty about it, that I felt backed into a corner around was that, um, you know, for me to some degree, if I could say it this way, that the Bible had like in the past had sort of bubble wrap on it. Um, Like the bubble wrap was like, well, this is the word of God. Um, This is a, a divine book. These are God's words. Um, words like infallible were used, which actually sort of came from the Protestant Reformation, whereas before the Pope was considered infallible. The Pope's words were considered perfect and without error. And coming out of the Protestant Reformation, they said, no, no, the Pope's not infallible. Scripture is. The Bible is infallible. It's perfect. It's unassailable. It's unimpeachable. Nothing it says is false. It's perfect. And I felt like some of these questions were like I'm wanting to take off the bubble wrap. And I was like, no, 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 no. If it takes, if it comes off, you know, what's going to happen to my faith. What's going to happen to this book. Is it going to come apart? And if it comes apart, will I come apart? Will I, will you? Are these questions we can ask about this book, about the Bible, about our faith as it relates to how and why and whether we read this? I think we can. I think they're questions we need to ask. I think it's important to know we can engage in them. And so I we'll want to take a moment um, to give you a chance to talk with each other and, you know, ask these questions, which questions of these have you had, do you have, or the people in your life have about them? And they could be questions about like just the, the authenticity of this book. Um, Questions about like, oh, does science, doesn't science disprove the Bible? Or do we take this literally? Can we really take it literally? Has it, is it a tool of oppression or slavery or racism or um, um, genocide? Uh, Hasn't it been changed so many times? How do we know that what we're reading is really what was originally written? Take a few minutes. We'll give you about three minutes together just to talk about this and where you're at or the people in your life are at, or perhaps you have other questions as you're doing this. I think we can ask these questions. We should ask these questions. We need to ask these questions. We don't need to be afraid to take the bubble wrap off. This is not fragile. We have to ask these questions, whether you're exploring faith or new to faith, or you are a follower of Jesus. And this book is an an important part of your faith journey. It's actually why we're in this series that we're calling, What on Earth Am I Reading? How do I read this book? Why does it matter to my life? And and how how can I understand it more? How can it help me in my faith journey? How do I wrestle with some of the questions and the complexity? Um, And you'll see a little QR code there uh, on the screen because we want you to uh, ask questions if you have them. Um, that can help you. Uh, and we're going to kind of keep a track, a tally of these, uh, these questions. So you can see that QR code um, and just scan it. And it takes you to a form and you can fill this in as many times as you want. It's anonymous, but there is a spot. If you want a specific follow-up on a question, something that's really, not just something you're musing about, but maybe something that's really hitting you hard. And you'd love one of the pastors, site pastors to follow up with you to talk. Either way, all the way through this series, we're going to keep track of the questions and hopefully we're going to have some forums and maybe some, some video interviews and stuff to try to address them. You know, but as we started um, last week, I think it would have been helpful for my 18 year old self um, to know as I had these questions or I was receiving them and wrestling with them even in my university experience. What we talked about last week, which is first of all, that Vijay, your faith is not based on a book. It's based on a person, (laughs) Your faith is not about a book. It's about a person, his name is Jesus and your ongoing relationship with him. That would have been helpful for me to know. If you missed it last week, go back and listen. That's a really important starting point for this whole conversation. the other thing that really would have been helpful for me to know that I wanna talk about today um, is that this book is both human and divine. That this is a book that's both human and divine and that that's a really important Concept to wrestle with and and tease out. Not just that's not that doesn't help you by I me mean, just saying it by itself, but to actually think about what does that mean that this is both human and divine, and how we wrestle with it. And here's my my um, my belief, my conviction, that this is going to become actually a really important idea for you to help you wrestle with the questions and help you as you read it. And ultimately, where we're going to land today at the end of this message, and just want to invite you to stay with me is the most important implication of the fact that this is human and divine. And the most important implication for you, if you're new to faith, exploring faith, well along in the faith journey, no matter what age and stage you're at, you're gonna wanna stay with me because the, the implication, the great implication of the fact that this is both human and divine is the one that has the most impact on us. Now, we wanna begin today with a reading from one of the letters in this book, Um, that was written to a a young church, a community of Jesus followers new in the first century. Um, it's a section of scripture that actually talks about how we're meant to think about these letters, these books that have become part of the library that is scripture, how we're meant to read them and wrestle with this dynamic of both human and divine. So I want you to listen as it's read for us. and we're going to talk about the implications of that together. For we did not follow clearly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He received honour and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory, saying, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. When we say that this book is both human and divine, we mean that in terms of who wrote it what's in it, how we're meant to read it and what we do with it. Like who wrote it, what's in it, how we're meant to read it and what we do with it. Human and divine has a huge implication on that. And the first thing it says that the, the scripture, like who wrote it, it has human authors and a divine author. There are human authors involved and a divine author. And it's interesting if you read what um, this, the writer of this letter says, as he's, he's describing how scripture came about, and and think that he's actually referring to the old Testament because that's what scripture they had, but we can apply this to what became scripture, the whole totality of the Bible. He says, though human, these writers, they spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy spirit. So he's describing the fact that this is somehow, uh, these are divine writings. These are words that God actually gave to people to write. And they wrote them as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. It's almost this picture of like, God's carrying them in his big hands while they're writing. And and he's saying they, they didn't do this by their own interpretation. These were the words of God that they wrote. And we see this divine authorship coming through in a number of ways. In some cases, it would be like, the word of the lord came to so and so write this down those are what were called the prophets the prophets spoke and said these are the words of god to you unless we think this is a you know the wild west everyone running around saying god said this god said that i mean people kind of did but the bar to be a prophet was pretty high like if you said these are god, god's words and this is what's going to happen and it didn't happen if you made some prophecies and it didn't come true you got stoned and not like 21st century <laughs> high school parking lot stoned like you got killed it was a high bar. If, if people didn't deem you were a prophet, if your words showed up and you said they were from God and they kind of proved over time to be not from God, you were killed. And so it was a high bar. Not a lot of people claimed to be prophets. There weren't a lot of them. God's word came to them directly. And in other cases, God was inspiring them with ideas and thoughts and even descriptions about him as they explained to the people who God was or they described God's interactions with human people. In other cases, God was sort of in the background, but revealed as, they, as you read the story, understanding about who God is was slowly coming to be. This is, in a sense, a divine book. Um, and also like, but, but it's, it's human authors. And so even this writer is saying, hey, we're telling you about eyewitness accounts. There were eyewitnesses, human beings who saw things, particularly eyewitnesses of Jesus Christ, his life, his miracles, his death, and his resurrection. In fact, you couldn't be an apostle in the early church to have that title. You had to have been an eyewitness of Jesus after he rose from the dead. Like you actually saw him, you ate with him, you touched him like flesh on, you knew that Jesus had risen from the dead. That was what qualified them to be um, apostles and writers of some of these letters, or they had firsthand eyewitness accounts from people, So uh, Luke, who wrote one of Jesus' biographies, he was not a disciple originally. He was not Jewish. He was Greek. He came to become a follower of Jesus, but he got the eyewitness accounts from others. And so there was an authorization, um, in a sense, a divine authorization of the human writers. But Christians don't believe that this book sort of fell from the sky. Like it's just something that got dug up and it felt, oh, it's just God's word. And there's, there's, nothing, there's nothing about it that's human. It's totally divine. It's like, no, it's mixed in. And not just human writers. Um, there's there's um, humanity all through it, which is why there's been arguments about it forever. There have been arguments about authorship. Who wrote these books? Some of the authorship is very clear. Some of it's not like, for example, the book I just read from second Peter, we might think, oh, that's Peter, the apostles with Jesus. And he references being an eyewitness of Jesus, but scholars are pretty sure Peter himself didn't write it. Um, he was a fisherman. We don't know how educated he was only 17% of the world was, um, was literate or could write. Most people didn't write, they hired scribes. And so you had this practice called pseudepigrapha where you would Um, write and use somebody else's name as you wrote. And we go, oh, that's fraud today, but it's not. It was a common practice because a lot of people didn't write, they hired scribes. Or they were writing and they used somebody's name that helped give credence to what they were saying. So clearly someone here in Peter is writing with his name, but describing the eyewitness account that Peter himself had and other eyewitnesses. So we go, oh, wait, what? Like, doesn't that discredit? No, that was a practice. And even J.K. Rowling, right? When she wrote um, the Harry Potter series, she said she used J.K. because she didn't want uh, someone to discredit her writing. Most of the science fiction and fantasy writers were male. And so if they found that she was a female, oh, she- they're not going to read it. And so she put J.K. Now that's not fraud. We go, oh, she it's, a, it's a little bit like what the pseudographer stuff was going on. But there was more of that. It doesn't discredit it, but it does recognize, hey, there's humanity involved in this. And there's been arguments for, and these are ancient documents that have been preserved for thousands of years, some of which we can date back and know exactly when it was written, exactly when, when we can barely do that about certain things with bodies that have died within a certain period of time, or when an accident happened or time, we're talking about thousands of years of when this was written and who wrote it and who was around and who can validate that. So we have to recognize what we're holding in our hands. There's complexity with authorship. But there was also arguments over whether books were considered divine. Martin Luther, the great, um, the Catholic priest who ended up reforming or trying to reform the Catholic church ended up splintering and starting all these Protestant denominations. He didn't like the book of James, which is in the new Testament, which is considered scripture, which is in the Bible. He said, I don't think it should be in the Bible Um, because James, he didn't like how James said, your faith isn't just what you in Jesus, your faith is actually proved by what you do. And Luther was big on, no, we're saved by grace. We're saved by the act of Jesus. We're not saved by what we do. And he felt like James was saying the opposite. So he didn't even want it in scripture. He didn't think revel, Revelation, the book of Revelation could be, could, should be in scripture. It was too trippy. It was too, I don't know, apocalyptic literature wasn't common in the 16th century when Luther was around. He didn't think it belonged in scripture. There people arguing over, why are these books here? And who says all of this is scripture? And how does it get put together? Because there's just a human aspect to it. But you can actually see the human authorship when you read some of it. Like one of the letters of Paul, he's saying, Oh, well, I don't remember. I only baptized this person, this person. Oh, yeah, I don't remember who I. Oh, no, I also baptized this person. Well, this isn't God writing saying, Okay, Paul, write, you baptize it, and then say, Oh, I forgot. No, it was, it's a human writing. At times, Paul would say, now I'm saying this to you, not the Lord. In other words, I'm not quoting Jesus now. This is me. I'm writing you this letter. They didn't have, the New Testament church didn't have the New Testament Bible. They had the writings, the letters of the apostles. They had teachings, each other's words, people who were eyewitnesses. It was a living, breathing, human thing that was being passed on. And nobody at the time necessarily thought, that Paul's letter was like, oh, it's divine or whatever, but it slowly over time became recognized as having the same kind of authority as some of the earlier books. And so it became scripture, but over several years. In fact, we see stuff in the gospel accounts that don't agree with each other. There's one story about Jesus healing a blind man in Jericho. Well, one of the gospel writers says there was two, and another one says there's one blind man who got healed. Some say he got healed on the way into Jericho, others on the way out of Jericho. So which was it? I don't know. I mean, they couldn't necessarily agree on it, (laughs) which we go, oh, well, that means it's false. Well, no, actually, if you talk to police investigators and lawyers, whenever there's eyewitnesses giving their account of something that happened, if the eyewitness accounts are all identical, they're actually suspicious of them because it sounds rehearsed. Whereas here, there's complexity in it. Was it two or one? Was it in Jericho or out of Jericho? Who knows? We don't know. But we do know this, some blind men, at least one got healed. That's not up for dispute. We can go, well, that's true. They're all writing about it in some shape or form. Well, how about the resurrection of Jesus? The gospel, which the whole Christian faith depends on. Three of the gospels or two of the gospels record um, him, like being seen by the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Mark's gospel, if you read it, ends with the women running away from an empty tomb, scared out of their lives. They had seen angels who said, he's not here, he's risen. But the gospel ends with them just running away scared. Now you see some later editions. Actually, if you read the scriptures, it'll say, this part was added later, later manuscripts. Which again, the Bible, the people who wrote it saying, hey, we're letting you know, some of this was older manuscripts. Some of it came in later. So where does that end? What does that mean? Well, you have an empty tomb in all of the accounts. In a couple of the other accounts, you see the disciples actually meeting him and the women. In all of the accounts, you have women as the first eyewitnesses. So do we know exactly how it all went down? No. We know there was an empty tomb and we know eventually, eyewitnesses saw Jesus. What's fascinating too, even the writings of Paul, In around the 40 or 50 AD, Paul's writing about the resurrection of Jesus, but he says, and we know this, what we've handed down to you. And he begins to repeat this thing that they had been sharing, that Jesus Christ was died and buried and was raised to life. And he first appeared to Peter. Paul, shame on you. He first appeared to the women. The gospel accounts, which were written later, all included this fact that it was the women who first saw Jesus. Why did Paul leave it out? Well, maybe he thought like, well, I'm trying to prove that this story is true. And they believe, and it was true. But he said, if I say women were the first eyewitnesses, women at that time in the ancient world, in the first century, they weren't allowed to give testimony in court. So kind of leaving that fact out might hopefully like they didn't want, he didn't want the truth to get discredited because of the truth. And so we kind of left it out. Now, I don't know why. And we can't talk to him now. You can ask him later. But the gospel writers about 40 years later said, no, no, Paul, it was the women all for them. They wouldn't let him do it that's humanity. I mean, does that make him a misogynist or sexist? I don't know. We don't exactly know why he did, but this is all part of the humanity that in fact, it actually contributes to the sense of authenticity about it. These are things that we say, okay, this was God in the middle of the human situation. Of course, it would be a bit complicated when the divine comes into the human world. Of course, it's going to be complex. How else would the divine being enter the human world except with some complexity and interplay between the divine being God and the human authors? And even friends, I read to you today, all of you have probably English translations of the Bible. And then there are Portuguese translations and Spanish translations and French translations and, and all different kinds of languages. But you know, it wasn't originally written in English or Portuguese or French, right? There was Greek and then the Hebrew and Aramaic. These are translated and the translators are human. It's not just that the original language is the word of God and everything else is sort of a human version. That's what the Quran states. That's why the Quran is only considered true in Arabic. It's divine when it's read and read aloud in Arabic, but any other English translation is not considered authorized. Well, that's not what Christians believe about the Bible. Saying people had to get together and translate this and they had to make decisions. What does this word mean? What is that? Where should the punctuation go? And punctuation makes a big difference when you're reading something. None of these original manuscripts had punctuation in them. So there are, you can read at the beginning of your Bible who the translation committees were, ordinary men and women, who were scholars who had to make dis, um, decisions. And they disagree sometimes on the words. That's all part of the humanity. It's honest, but how else would it work? And here's the thing. The point isn't to separate the divine from the human authors. It's to experience and know God in the middle of the human stuff, right? It's not to go, well, which parts divine, which it's all mixed together. And that doesn't mean that we can't say, oh, we know for sure this is true and real. We have to do the work, but we recognize it's divine and human. It's complex. Which leads us really to our second point about being divine and human is what's in it is there's divine activity and human activity, which means what we see is both beautiful and ugly, perfect and imperfect. Especially the early parts of scripture, We see God interacting with people in the world and culture of the ancient Near East. And we have to be honest about the fact that the ancient Near East as a culture, what we know about ancient Mesopotamia and all those areas, if you read any history, it was a world of patriarchy, slavery, racism, genocide. There was war. There was all kinds of stuff going on in that human situation. And theologians describe this idea of God, the divine accommodating himself to the human situation. Of course, we know ultimately in Jesus, he did that by becoming flesh so we could understand him and see him. But God was doing that long before Jesus became human and entered our world. That God was a part of, in a sense, allowing himself to be seen and known within very human imperfect and broken people, situations, systems, and practices. Just read that again for a moment. The the, the book, this divine and human tells us that God was allowing himself to be seen and known in the midst of within very human, imperfect and broken people, situations, systems, and practices. Let me give you a couple of examples. The whole animal sacrifice thing, animal sacrifice was a common part of worship in the ancient near East blood sacrifice. So God comes and begins to uh, establish a relationship with a group of people. And he says, okay, you're going to uh, sacrifice animals too, which we're like, oh, that's so barbaric in the blood and like, does God need blood? No, we know, but that was how they understood. Oh, well, yes, we worship, but our God is different because other ancient Near East religions also had cult prostitution as a part. Sexuality and spirituality and worship were all tied together in ancient Near East pagan cultures. But God did not have that as part of his people's worship. He says, no, I'm not accommodating that part. That part is destructive to women, to yourself, to everything. We're not gonna allow that, but the animal sacrifices, we will. And we live in a world where we put sweaters on our pets and give them birthday presents and all that stuff. So it's so far from our remove, but God is working within that system. And eventually what? the writer of Hebrews says, there's no way the blood of animals could take away sins. We have Jesus, our perfect sacrifice. You don't need to sacrifice animals anymore. So now when you and I come to church, we don't have to bring Fluffy the lamb and kill him for worship. It's changed over time, right? But let me give you a more, uh, more profound and deep and powerful example, slavery. Slavery was a common part of the ancient Near East. And it was a part of war as you got conquered. And if you were conquered by another army, then you became slaves. Well, what do we see? We think, oh, that's so offensive. How could there be slavery in the Old Testament, New Testament? And people will ask you that question. I've had those questions. But if you read God accommodating himself to the people, but divine activity in the midst of the human activity of slavery, well, you'll start to notice something. In fact, you'll start to notice a trajectory throughout scripture. First of all, in the Old Testament, the laws that the people of God have around slavery were, were meant to care better for the slaves than the ancient Near East practices. In the ancient Near East chattel slavery, you could just barter and exchange people and they were perpetual slaves. The Israelite people, if they had a slave in their home, they could not sell them to another person. If a man married a woman who, and she became his wife, if he divorced her after she didn't go back to slavery status, she was now a, a free person and you couldn't sell and exchange. And so we all oh, well, they shouldn't have had slaves uh, at all. Of course. And eventually that's what happened. But you see movement from the ancient Near East culture to the Old Testament. Well, now along comes Jesus and his teachings about who are um, high and low in society, who are first and last. And he begins to undo the ideas and the systems of using people and discrediting people and devaluing people because of their gender, because of their social status, or because of their sickness, which prompts the New Testament writers eventually to say, in Christ, there's no slave or free. Now, slavery was still part of the system. Why? It was literally holding up the economy of the the Roman empire. To get rid of slavery would have crumbled the entire empire, which the Jews were a part of. But the writers of the New Testament start to change and they start to say, the writers, Paul was writing to masters and slaves and say, listen, don't be harsh and work together. Which is why in the New Testament church, within the first century, you start to see slaves as house leaders. And so someone who would have washed the feet of his master on Friday is in church on Sunday and the master's coming and washing his feet. Oh my gosh, now everything's starting to get turned upside down. And eventually William Wilberforce, Martin Luther King and the emancipator said, in the name of Jesus, this shouldn't be, right? God accommodating himself to the situation, but slowly, progressively changing it and bringing the human activity in line with the divine activity, In a line, God all the way through even wrapped up in these messy situations, we have to realize we're reading a book of story that spanned thousands of years and God is still working to change human ideas and human activity in line with his heart and his mind. So we read it as human and divine, not just who wrote it, not just what's in it, but how we read it. And I would say this recognizing that this is human and divine should produce a kind of reading that we read with curiosity, reverence, and humility curiosity, reverence, and humility. And by that, I mean, we should be quick and slow to say, the Bible says, We can be quick to say, the Bible says, because we read it with reverence. These are the words of God. There's words of life, encouragement, correction, wisdom, way beyond its ears. I mean, you think like, well, how do we know this is true? In some respects, the truth gets proved out. One of my favorite examples of this is in Romans. Paul says, anyone who sins sexually, we would expect to say, is a terrible person. He says, anyone who sins sexually sins against themselves. Like Paul... Hundreds of years before we knew, thousands of years before we knew and understood human psychology and sexuality and its impact on the soul and the mind, he's saying, hey, it's possible to use your sexuality in a way that does damage to yourself. (laughs) These things get proved out over time. The truth of it becomes real. And so we can say... This is with reverence. These are the words of God. These are the words that bring instruction and life. We can say these are words that are meant to be followed and trusted and obeyed. We read it with reverence. There's divine activity, divine words, divine ideas that over time are proved to be true. There's words that reveal who God really is. We can say, wow, that's who God is. And even people who don't know the Bible would say, well, if it's, if God's really God, he should be a God of love, right? Yes. That's what this book tells us over and over and over again. We know it's true about what it reveals reveals about God. And of course, the eyewitness accounts of who Jesus is, what he said, those are all divine things. God entering our world, we can say and read it with, we should be quick to say, the Bible says, Jesus said this, these are words of life, to share them, memorize them, use them in each other's lives. (laughs) We should also be slow to say, the Bible says, because you know what? I might not always understand. And why did it say that? And was that just for that period of time? Or is that for now? I mean, that's a good question. We're going to get into that later on but I need to be slow to say it as well. That this is, there's mystery involved in a book that has divine activity and human activity that has uh, a divine author and human authors. I should be slow to say, well, I know this. I understand that. It's mystery, not mastery that we have over this text. And then curiosity and perseverance. Like be curious, wonder. A lot of these questions we ask they're easy to ask in the sense of 20 words in three seconds. You can say, well, hasn't the Bible been changed a lot? And so we don't really know what it says anymore. Or wasn't the Bible a tool of oppression? The answers are not easy. Sometimes I would ask my friends, oh, do you really want to know? Because if you really want to know, it's going to take time. Or do you just want to say that so you can just duck out of what the Bible says to you? I know it's kind of arrogant. But I mean, honestly, even for ourselves, just because we can form the words quickly, especially you young people. I know you're used to Googling everything and getting, you know, 140 characters or whatever. These are complex questions, good questions you're asking, questions you should try to get the answer to or wrestle with or live in the mystery of, but they won't come easy. So stay curious and persevere. Stay with it. Ask others for help. Look up commentaries, um, talk to people, read books. We have so many books we can recommend. We don't wanna overload you with resources, but there's lots of questions about interpretation, about the role of women in scripture, or about slavery, about sexuality. There's so many people that write about this. Don't be intellectually lazy and don't be an intellectual snob or a historical snob where you only read what somebody who's been alive for 25 years wrote. There are books of dead people that we need to read and understand. So be curious and stay with it. And lastly, and maybe most importantly, this is the most important thing, human and divine, what we do with it. As in this book can produce divine results in our lives or very human results. I mean, the fact is any holy book can produce unholy results. As part of us taking the bubble wrap off it is saying, we can admit, At times throughout history and often people have used this book as a tool of oppression, as a tool of misogyny, as a tool of racism. We can admit it has been used that way. It doesn't mean it is that kind of book, but we can admit, you know what? This has and can produce very unholy results. And I don't just mean churches and Christians who were using verses in here to condone keeping slaves. It seems like even when Jesus appeared, The religious leaders, he was constantly challenging them about the fact that they were using these words or twisting the words or um, using them to oppress other people or to make themselves more important or rich or to get out of certain responsibilities that were obviously really important for them to do. Jesus constantly challenged them with the the fact that they were using this as a tool of oppression in other people's lives. They were misusing it, misinterpreting scripture. And so we have to recognize it's possible for a holy book to produce very unholy results. (laughs) So how do we ensure that the divine results, the divine intention of God is what gets produced when we read this. Well, I want to close with this very important conversation Jesus has about this with the religious leaders as they were constantly challenging him on the way he was interpreting scripture. Cause at times he would say, Hey, you've heard it said, but I say he was reinterpreting saying, I know God said this in the past, but I'm saying this now. I know you used to say this, but I'm saying this. At times he was helping them understand or evolve their thinking of scripture Now, I want you to think about it this way. Other times, he was just helping interpret it in the way that it has been misunderstood forever. And so they were constantly challenging him at the way he was interpreting and reinterpreting scripture. And so at one point, they have this conversation in the book of Matthew. um, And here's what happens Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, one group of religious people who were challenging him, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, the, the, the law of Moses, the, the, the scriptures, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Friends, maybe this is maybe one of the most important things Jesus ever said. And it's certainly the most important thing, I think, for us as we read and wrestle with this book that is both human and divine. And how do we know what we're going to do with it, that it would produce divine results? And here's what Jesus says, don't miss this. Someone asked him, well, what's most important about all this scripture and all these instructions and everything in this divine book that they saw it as? He says, well, all the law and the prophets, which was a way of describing all the prophetic writing, the first five books of the Bible, the, the, what they call the Tanakh, or the, the Torah and then the prophets. He says, all of that hangs on two things. One is the most important thing, love God. With everything you have, love God from your heart, with your mind, your whole life, your whole being, love God. And the other thing he said, the second is like, in other words, as important and very connected to it, love your neighbor with everything you have. He says, as you love yourself. Well, you love yourself with everything you have. Self-preservation is the strongest instinct we have. He says, you know what? Love your neighbor the way you would love yourself, the way you look after yourself, the way you prioritize yourself, love your neighbor like that. And then he says, everything else in scripture hangs on those two things. In other words, if you don't have those two things, all of it falls apart. So if we're worried about this thing falling apart, we need to actually come back to the thing that Jesus says is most important about it, to love God and love your neighbor. In other words, the divine results that this should uh, produce in our lives is love for God and for other people. That is ultimately the divine results. If we miss this, all the rest of the thinking and debating and wrestling or whatever, Jesus says doesn't matter because it's about growing in your love for, devotion for, obedience to God, your trust in Him and loving other people. These are the divine results that reading scripture is meant to produce in our lives. And so here's, I wanna give you a simple kind of question or rubric that you can use every time you're reading scripture. And this comes from, you know, one of those, the great theologian, Tina Turner, who said, what's love got to do with it, right? What's love got to do with it? That is the question you ask when you're reading. When you're reading scripture and you come up against something that seems weird or very human, very ordinary, or even partly offensive in some shape or form, or just confusing. Ask, what's love got to do with it? And let me give you a final example. I know this has been a long message, but this is so important. I'm trying to help you have tools as you read. You read a story in uh, Genesis 12, 13, 14 about God's work with the first um, family that he was going to bless and then give them more children who would also know God. And eventually God would be known through the whole world, through all these descendants. He starts with this man, Abraham and his wife, Sarah. And he says to them, you're going to have a son. And um, then they're gonna, he's going to have sons and, and, and more family. And the whole earth will know I'm going to bless you. And you'll be a blessing to other people. Well, they were old and they tried to conceive. It didn't work. And so they go and do something that was very common in the ancient Aries, but very offensive to us. Sarah says to Abraham, well, I have this maidservant. Why don't you sleep with her and have a child? And this was offensive on a number of levels because we go, well, how could you do that? That's just terrible. That's destroying your marriage. And then you're just going to use this woman and discard her because she's not going to become your wife. And then you're going to take the child that she gets pregnant with and claim it as you and your wife's child. And this, they both agreed, Abraham and Sarah, this is our idea. And we're going, that's terrible. That was common practice. What's love got to do with it? (laughs) Well, this woman, Hagar has a son, Ishmael. And then Sarah actually gets pregnant with Abraham and has a son, Isaac, and there's fighting and jealousy. And so Hagar gets kicked out and sent to the desert. Now, if we go, if this was a modern romance novel, we're like, oh, I wonder what's going on with Hagar. You know what the ancient Neary said? Who cares? They don't care. She's just a maidservant, it doesn't matter. We have to realize this book was way ahead of its time that written thousands of years ago, nobody would have cared about Hagar, but the writers of Genesis say, no, God went out and found this woman in the desert, appeared to her and said, I see you, I'm with you. Here's a well, you can drink water, I'll keep you alive and I'm gonna bless you. I know you were used and discarded, but I'm gonna bless you and I'm gonna bless your son and he's gonna be great and your name will be great. We see God's love. What's love got to do with it? God's love to the marginalized, the rejected, the used and abused, the one cast off. And then God goes to Abraham and says, I know, hey, you used a backup plan. You didn't trust me. You went and did your own thing. Does God kick him to the curb? He says, no, I'm I'm still going to bless you. I'm still going to work with you. Even though you don't trust me, even though you create backup plans and you have your side projects, we see God's love and grace and patience for people, even when they make bad decisions. What's love got to do with it? We get to see and love God more for how he loves others to say, God, you're amazing. There's nobody like you. And then if we really love you, well, then what is it going to produce in us? If you love the loving, self-emptying, self-sacrificing God, that's the kind of love you begin to have. And we get sent out to those who are rejected and used and abused, the marginalized, the ones that other people say aren't important. We show grace to others who, you know, betray us or don't trust us or make a mess of their lives. We don't say, well, God helps those who help themselves. No, Abraham Lincoln said that. The scriptures say God goes after those who make a mess of themselves, even when they've rejected him. Even like Abraham make backup plans, God doesn't give up on us. So we don't give up on each other. Friends, this is what it means to ask ourselves as we're reading, what's love got to do with it? I'm telling you, if you ask that question amidst all of your questions, (laughs) the other questions and complexities we have, it will not only help you understand scripture more, it'll not only change how you read scripture, it'll change you, it'll change me. You know, I think that if the people who read scripture as holy with reverence and curiosity and patience and perseverance with humility. If we let it produce love in us, a growing love for God and a growing love for others, I think that probably there will be less and less questions from the people around us as to why does it say this and why does it say that as they begin to see a community of people transformed by the love of this book, (laughs) that love becomes the ultimate answer to the questions.